All right. Take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 33. And we're going to look at husband and wives today. Should be an interesting. There is a, uh, one rule I put in when I preach on husband and wives. I don't want to see anybody elbowing anybody next to you when I make a point that, you, that they want you to hear. Uh, let's try. You'll be surprised how many times I've seen that where I'll make a statement and somebody, the wife or the husband, will elbow the other one and say, listen, you need to hear that. I got here this morning, and I, you know, when you're, when you're retired, I have a clock in my bathroom that tells me what day it is. Because I just, like this morning, I woke up at 6 and walked in and went, oh, it's Sunday. I got to go to Greenville. I better get a sermon ready. No, I didn't have to do that. <laughs> but I walked here and thought maybe it was St. Patrick's Day. So I'm wearing a T-shirt under threat from some of the staff. But anyway, I've got the T-shirt on, so I'm ready. All right. I'm going to do this sermon different than I normally do. I'm going to still come to the two points of a husband and wife's responsibility, but I'm going to start a little different than what I would normally do. I'd have never thought of coming the direction I'm going even 10 years ago. But our world is upside down crazy. So this Friday, one of the privileges I get a lot of times is to meet some very interesting people. And Friday night, I got to spend time talking with Riley Gaines. Do you know who Riley Gaines is? Riley Gaines is the fastest women, woman swimmer in America. Uh, give a little bit of background. She's a 12-time All-American, five-time SEC, SEC champion at the University of Kentucky. She was number one in 2022 in the 100 freestyle, the 200 freestyle, the 200 fly, the 200 medley, the 400 medley relay, the 400 free relay, and the 800 free relay. First in all of those. Uh, she is the 2022 SEC Female Scholar Athlete of the Year. So she's not only a superstar athlete, and she's just a little old girl. I was surprised at the, her numbers when I went back later after I talked with her to see what she had done. But she's not famous for that. As she will tell you, very few people follow women swimming at college levels. What she is famous for is in the 2022 National Championship in the 200 freestyle, she went against the trans from the University of Pennsylvania. Now, she is the only woman who matched him. She said, normally and when you're swimming, you win a meet by a, a race by one hundredth of a second, two hundredths of a second. It is that close always between a champion and even the 16th place finisher in a, in a heat. But he was beating the women by links. And that's hard to do in swimming. You've got to be way above. Now, against men, he was rated the year before in men's swimming in college by 435th in the nation, which means he wasn't even a blip in the, in the whole thing of men's swimming. But he is the national champion. They went no-to-nose, and she tied him. She went to the podium to get her national championship award for tying in the 200 freestyle and was told she could not receive it. The reason why she was not allowed to receive it, it was not a good photo op for the NCAA. The good, the good photo op was for the young man to stand up there 
as the winner of the women's 200-meter freestyle. I won't even go in the background of what had happened before the race in the dressing room. Men in here who have daughters, you would be livid if you were to hear what she and the other swimmers went through before they even got to the race. There are all kinds of things I could tell you about this. But she stood there at the swimming thing off the side watching this unfold with all the photographers and the press there in huge droves to make this historic moment as a trans stood on the championship. And she's going, why is nobody saying anything? Why is this being allowed to happen? She had given her life, literally six to eight hours every day of her life, to be the best swimmer in the nation, and it's taken away from her by this. So she made a determination that day to stand. You saw what happened to her in San Francisco. If you're not aware, go find it on YouTube, what happened when she spoke in San Francisco in behalf of women, protecting them when it came to sports. She barely escaped with her life. Doesn't get that much detail in the press, but when you're talking with her on the side with nobody around, she is very fortunate to have survived that night from all the rioting that was going on around her. She was trapped for three hours in a building and could not escape. She had security guards so tight around her, it was not even funny. And she's just a little girl. You go to my Facebook page, you'll see me and her standing there. And I've got my arm around her, she's got her around me, and she's right here, and I'm a lot bigger than she is. I'm telling the story for this reason. As she spoke at the meeting I was at, but then afterwards she and I had a chance to talk. She made a statement, nobody will stand with me. No one will stand with me. Here's how bad it is. She got a booth at an NCAA national event. They would not give it to her. She was paying with her own money because of her name. So she went under a pseudonym and got the booth anyway. Traveled there at her own expense, paid for the booth, and started handing out things on women's protection in sports. This was a big event. Athletic directors from around the nation and head coaches of all sports from around the nation were there. And they would come to her and say, Riley, you're doing good. Keep this up. Somebody needs to do this. Everyone who came by our booth, not scores, hundreds. She asked each one of them, would you put your name on a paper with me and take a stand? Oh, we can't. I will tell you this, at the head of the NCAA, she told me, the head guy of the NCAA who allowed this to happen told her, Riley, you're right, but there's nothing I can do about it. So you keep speaking. The head guy couldn't do it either. I told her, I said, well, welcome to the club. Nobody will stand with you. That's my frustration. I said, I was you 10 years ago. Sergeant Monk and I were you. And nobody would stand with Sergeant Monk. They would send us emails and they would stand with us on the emails, but not publicly. Nobody would stand publicly. So I'm doing all of this to get into this passage today because we're at a point now that people are scared of this passage to even stand on the basic truths of this passage. And my challenge to you today is, you sang just a moment ago, good pick of a song. You didn't know what I was going to do, but a good pick. Though none go with me, I still will follow. If none go with me, 
no turning back. My challenge to you today is, is not to live in fear when it comes to the basic truths of what life's about, but to live with some courage and be willing to stand with those who are being persecuted in our country. And you say, well, I don't how am I going to do that? You never know when it's going to be your day. She told me, she said, Steve, I never saw this coming. I was just a swimmer. I didn't want to be anybody's national spokesman. People could be asking me where I get the courage. I said, I don't have hardly any courage, but my friends are in trouble, and I'm trying to protect them. I said, you got it right. That's what this is about. It isn't courage. It's humility. You care more about others than you do about yourself. So with that, I want to look at marriage in maybe a slightly different light than you normally would hear this. I'll get to the basic of what women's responsibility are and men's are. But you stand with me, and I'm going to read the whole passage, 22 to 33. I didn't intend to, but I think it'd be good just to hear God's word read. So here's what it says. <clears throat> Wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives and as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourished and cherished it, just as Christ does that now for the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, and I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Join with me as we pray. Father, I ask you to speak in a clear way today. Help us to all grasp and understand the simple truths of what life is about. And may we learn some things today that will help us to strengthen our families so that we can, in the midst of this day in which we live in, we can stand firm and stand strong in all that we do. Now, Father, watch over and guide us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So let me start this way this morning. I'm going to start at the end of the passage instead of the first working my way down. And I'm going to start with the statement. I'm going to just say it this way. I think I need to remind everybody that marriage was the first institution that God gave us. Marriage has always been critical and important in all that God had planned. Paul, in verse 31, is quoting Genesis 2.24. He is not bringing something new into it. He's going all the way back to creation and laying out the foundations of what God is doing. And says this, for this reason. And the reason being in that Genesis passage is that women were taken from the rib of a man. So because that woman came out of man, for this reason, he now gets into it. And it's now the man's job to cleave back to his wife. And I use that word intentionally, the word cleave. It's an old word. It's an old English word. We don't use it much anymore. But when I do weddings, it's still in my wedding when I'm doing the wedding between a young man and young woman. Because it means a man it holds on tightly to the lady that is next to her. That's what cleave means. It's a very important word to be attached and as they, he cleaves back, though the woman came from him, in marriage you come back together, he cleaves, and they become one flesh. And that's more than just a sexual union. That has to do with the entire life of how you come together. 
Jesus quotes from here. When he is dealing with the subject of marriage in Matthew 19, this is such a critical thing in Genesis and that Paul's referencing back to Genesis that he even does that. And he makes this statement, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Because when you come back in one flesh, you cannot, you're not to ever separate that ever again. And Jesus, though, does something, and that's where I'm going with this. He ties it back to Genesis 1.27. And you know what Genesis 1.27 says. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 5.2 repeated a second time. He created them male and female as he gets now into the genealogy that follows. I'm going to remind you today there are only two sexes. I don't care what you see when you're filling out forms nowadays or anything else. It's male and female. And that's not changing. The world may change the definitions, but God doesn't. And you and I need to recognize these kind of things. And I need you to recognize something else. When he made you the way he made you, it was for a purpose and it was good. A lot of people struggling with that now. A lot of this stuff that's going on. It's a struggle in hearts and minds about how we've been created or why we are we are. What does Psalm 139 talk about? It says that you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I give thanks to you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. If he made you a female, he made you fearfully and wonderfully. You have been formed by him and you're exactly who he wants. You're a man. You've been formed by God, fearfully and wonderfully made. And he wants you to live fully the life which he has created for you for. And it says this, wonderfully your works, and my soul knows it very well. You know what today says in Genesis after that? <clears throat> I want you to, God's going to bless you, and he wants you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Guys, I'm just started the sermon today with something I never thought I'd need to say. But marriage is a good thing. It's between a man and a woman. I don't care what the world says. You can't change your sexes. God created us. and We need to live out fully the life in which he has made us. And the reason we want to do this is because Psalm says this, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat of the fruit of your hand, you'll be happy and it'll be well with you. That's referencing back to the Ephesians 4 when he says, work with your own hands. Don't take what doesn't belong to you, but work with your hands so you'll have plenty for your family and everyone else. And then he's going to say in verse 3, your wife will be as a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive plants around the table. It just means you're going to be a blessed family. When you follow God's way, it works. I don't know if you realize it, but when you follow God's plan, even through the tough times in your life, it's going to work. You know, I have never had anybody come into counseling ever for these reasons. I have never had anybody walk in them off and sit down and say, Preacher, I need help. I need help. Okay, how can I help? My kids obey me. I don't know why. What am I doing wrong? I've never had that. I've never had anybody come in and say, Preacher, we need help. Husband and wife sitting there. We just get along. We love each other. What are we doing wrong? You know, I'm being very facetious at this point, but I've just learned when you 
fall into the place of what God's called you to do. Your life has a tendency to give you the strength and courage to be able to live. Now, it doesn't always end always in good ways, but you're more likely to be blessed in the most amazing ways when you walk according to the things of God. And so that's what I need to remind us all, how blessed it is if you fear God. Men, I challenge you, the Bible says, to rejoice in the wife of your youth. She was a gift that he gave you. You obtained favor from the Lord, he says. So I just want to remind us again, marriage is a good thing. I don't care what the world says. And marriage between a man and a woman, I don't care what the world says. And I'm stunned that people are afraid to make that statement publicly. When I left talking with Riley Gaines the other day, I was standing in line to get my car. I'd had it valet parked at the hotel downtown Fort Worth. And I was standing there, and there were a bunch of people standing around that had been in the same thing I was at. And they were going, we need more preachers. You've got the courage to stand up. I'm just standing there listening. I don't totally disagree with that. Yeah, they, they got to do that. And I finally, I said, yeah, and so do you. They didn't win me a good favor at that particular moment. We get blamed for everything, but I'm not the one who has to go publicly to make these statements. You do at work, among family and friends. You're the ones who stand on the front lines in life of these issues. I just finished a book, I'm, well, I'm two-thirds through it, called White Pill. It's brand new, just came out. It's on how why Russia went the way it did. I was fascinated by it because my grandson, being Russian, uh, I wanted to have a little more understanding of, of where he came from. I'm going to sidelight for a note. My son-in-law took my grandson to a boys' event at their church. They were doing paintball uh, wars and with father-son. They had, they had a blast. But afterwards, they had to sit down, and the fathers had to ask their sons, questions that were given to them by the staff. And one of the questions that Troy had to ask our Tim was, who is your hero? Well, our Tim has got a mind that just blows me away. Very sharp, very analytical. He's been that way ever since he came from Russia. It's, I, I really think he's going to do something really amazing. And he outshines all my other grandkids combined when it comes to his mental capabilities. And so he looks at my son-in-law, Troy, and said, what definition of hero are you using? Troy said, it's not my definition of hero. What is your definition of hero? And our Tim said, a hero to me is someone who saves someone in life. And Troy said, son, great definition. Who are your heroes? And he looked at Troy and says, you and mom. Well, you know what that does to a parent. But now in an adopted situation, this is even more special. Because he used mom, you and mom. And he says, why? Because you saved my life and I have a chance now. That's why this family stuff is so important. Whether it's through our own kids or kids that we adopt, but the people around us, this stuff works. We struggle with it. We don't always get it right, but we need to walk in the ways of the Lord. And God will bring a blessing for that. So now let's look at the two ways that the men and the women in the room are supposed to act towards each other in marriage. 
The first one is wives are be husbands. I'll say it out loud. It would be submissive to your husband. Now, before I get, and I had somebody last Sunday say, I'm not coming next Sunday because I don't hear another Baptist preacher talk about wives being submissive to husbands. Before I get a horrible reaction from the women, let me point out something simple in the fact in the, in the scriptures. In Ephesians 5.21, it says this. Be submissive to one another in the fear of the Lord. We're all called, all of us, to be submissive to each and every one of us. All of us. Second, in Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers, to authorities, to be in obedience, to be ready for every good deed. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Peter says, submit yourself, submissiveness, to, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether a king or to a governor. So every one of us in this room ought to be submissive towards those who are in government. Titus, speaking to slaves who have masters. And Scripture does not support slavery, but it has always been a fact of life. And if you're caught up in it, it gives us admonitions of how you have to live within that particular moment. And though we have slavery, such a negative connotation in America, it needs to be there's still many who are enslaved in all kinds of ways. Come to San Antonio and let me show you what's going on in the sex slavery thing that's going on with young women being kidnapped around the nation more than you'll ever know if you talk to some of my FBI agents in my church. So there's still slavery going on. But So he's dealing with that in his days, and he says, I want you to be subject to your master to be well-pleasing because God's pleased with this. And I can't think of a more horrible situation to be involved in than a slave being with a master and having to do that within that setting. I mean, so far, none of us are exempt from submissiveness. So ladies, why does it go against you sometimes to hear that about your husband? When you're supposed to be that towards everybody and towards those who are in government. I'm interested, is he not as important? Guys, you don't realize how important this is. Scripture says it's fitting. You don't want the word of God to be dishonored. So, okay, you got to say, okay, preacher, what does it look like? Well, you know where I go to see what it looks like? Because right here we're just given a thing of tying the church and Christ together, but a more practicality, always go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, the third chapter, first seven verses. And Peter does, I think, an interesting job because you've got to know something. Peter was married. Paul wasn't. My friends in the Catholic Church in San Antonio would say, no, Peter never had a wife. Yeah, he did. You know how I know that? Because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And I don't know a guy who has a mother-in-law without a wife <laughs> being a part of it. I didn't go looking for a mother-in-law. I ended up getting the best one I could have ever asked for in life when I married Jan. So he writes about this. And so here's what he tells ladies. You cannot win your husband over by words, but by behavior. Little secret, men have selective hearing. You ladies don't have to shake your head, but it's real. It's real. It, and, and I think mine's gotten a little worse. I tell you, I'm going deaf at 70. That's got to be the reason. I come home tired. I just want to sit in my chair. But it says you win by behavior, not words. Because the men will watch. And they're looking, there's two things it says it's very important. Your chaste behavior 
That means pure. You say, well, why do I got to be that? Well, we're all called to be pure. And James tells me that wisdom from above is first pure. So this quality comes by your faith and trust in Christ, this purity within your life. My kids will tell you they don't think my wife ever sinned when she was young. She was a goody two-shoes. She's always done things well. And I feel almost depraved sometimes being around her because she always gets things so right. And I've been a slow-learning guy most of my life. And so, but she's brought me a long way. I will give credit to that. And took me from being a crusty old guy to a halfway decent guy. I didn't say decent, but halfway. I'm getting there. But she has a good life, and I see that every single day. And then respectful behavior. Ladies, do not underestimate the importance a man needs respect. That is so ingrained in who we are. Deeper than you can ever imagine. I won't go into if we were doing this in a room with, with no kids around. I would give an illustration. I won't do it this way, but I'll just say this. You ladies think you've got us figured out. And we are very simple creatures. There are only about three things we need in life. If we got them, we're okay. But the one thing you haven't figured out many times is respect. You know, I love sports. You know why I love sports? And I love being back on the football field with the kids. Because that's where we get our respect, the fruit with each other, that we can get out on the field and we can compete and you win respect. That's why men love military, especially the men love the military. They build this camaraderie with each other as they get ready to go to war, and it's a respect thing that builds up. It's huge. I've been very blessed that Jan has been very much that way towards me my entire life, and maybe there are times I didn't deserve to be respected, but she did that. And when you do that to a man, he'll bend over backwards and do whatever you can imagine. And what you got to know is, here's how you do this. Peter says that there's something you need to do. And what women need to do is, and he does this thing about hair, jewelry, and clothing, which seems kind of strange, but yet in a sense it's not. And what he's going to say, don't let everything just be how you fix your hair up every morning, the jewelry you put on, the clothing. You know, if you're at the Branson household on a Sunday morning, we were up at 6.15 this morning. I get up at 6.15, I go in, have a cup of coffee, review my sermon, look at some news, do a couple other things, go outside, check something in the yard, this and that. Jan goes straight into the bathroom, starts fixing her hair, putting her makeup on, and I will walk in about, oh, I'll say about 7.40, and I needed to leave at 7.50 to get here when I need to be here. And in about 10 minutes... Got my hair ready. I got my clothes on. I'll be going to the door. She says, you're not going dressed like that. So I'll go back and change. (laughs) But she walks out, makeup perfect, hair perfect, clothing perfect. She'll change four times, getting ready for Sunday morning. So she looks ready to go out. I'm grateful for that. She's one good-looking young lady. and I love the fact of how she does all of that. And that's true across the board in most cases. But he says that's not what life's about. It's not that he's condemning that. It's a good thing. But what he says is spend as much time on the hidden person. Character is more important than how you look out to everybody when you're at church on Sunday. And there are two things he said you have to have, ladies. One is gentleness. 
That means meek, humble. It's a powerful word. It's not a weak word. It's a strong word. It means your emotions, your words, everything are under control. You have control of what's going on in your life. Jesus says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle. He's calling ladies in the room to be gentle as he is. And so it's power under control. The second thing he says, quiet spirit. He is not saying stay quiet. But the quietness is in your heart. So when you speak, you'll be heard. You know that Proverbs is very interesting sometimes when it said it's better to live in the corner of a roof than with a contentious woman. No amens from the guys right now. But there's some truth to that. This gentleman quiet. And here's what this looks like. In 1988, I got shot, go back, I got shot by a shotgun in, high, in college. My best friend who was HPD for almost 40 years was experimenting with a shell and didn't think it'd do anything, and he turned to a friend of mine and said, run, and he shot us. It hurt. Blew me into a tree. I'm laying in the mud. We don't know if I was there five seconds or five minutes. They're standing over me. They're going, we don't see any blood. So we got me up, sprayed back teen on my back. It doesn't work, but that's what we guys do. My mom found out that night. I thought she was going to kill my buddies. Well, I paid for it later with back surgery. And back surgery, for those of you who had it, you know it's not fun. And in old days, 30 years ago, it was not easy to recover from. And I came, I was in such pain, I did not get out of bed for three or four weeks before surgery. And afterwards, I thought, my doctor said Joe Montana had my surgery. He was back on the NFL field six weeks later. Well, I wasn't going to be on anybody's field six weeks later because it still hurts so bad of what I was going through. And so you know what I did? One of the few times in my life I've ever done this. I quit. I just sat in my chair, never got up. Three days in a row, I didn't do anything. Some of you have met my wife. She's been here twice. You know that she's five foot tall. She has blue eyes. But on that day, that little five foot woman walked in and there was red in those eyes. Not from crying. She was very upset with her knight in shining armor that now is very rusty. And she looked at me and said, I've never been more disappointed than I am now. I've always been able to count on you. Won't be able to do it anymore. So I'll go tomorrow, apply for a nursing position in Littlefield. You just sit in your chair. You watch the kids when they're home. I'll take care of everything. Made me mad. But I knew she was right. I heard every word she said. So in spite of all of that, I got up and walked. Just to prove her wrong. My pride stepping up at that point. But I eventually walked myself back to health. I've always thought that's how it is, ladies. It's how you address us, how you speak to us. And we hear so much more clear. The word submissive is respect more than anything else. And a man who has respect is going to do well. Lastly, husbands, I think you got it tougher because I'm a man. That's why I'm going to say that. You have to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You want a high standard. That's taking it to a level that's amazing at that particular point. 
Why did Jesus do what he did for the church? He did it so the church would have no spot, wrinkle, or be, and be holy and blameless. Man, it's your job to treat your wife so well that she becomes a woman that God wants her to be. Give her safety in all that she does. And a reminder to the men in our passage is, if you don't love your wife, the problem is not her. It's you. You don't like who you are. And so you take it out on her or the kids because of your dislike of who you are. Because if you love yourself, you'll love your wife. Scripture says love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's the same way in marriage. Love your wife as you love yourself. And why are you to love your wife? You're one flesh. Now let me give you Peter's observations. There are three of them. He gave women six verses because I think we're more difficult to live with. He gave men one verse because we can't remember much. Here's what he tells men. Live with your wives. I was getting ready to do a wedding. I was doing this counseling for the young couple of mine, I think, in my office. And I said, okay, your job's to live with her. He said, why do you think I'm getting married? I want to live with her. That's not what it means. Here's what it means, men. It's your job to be close to her. It is not her job to be close to you. You're the one that's called to cleave unto her. It's your responsibility to be there. I grew up, all I wanted was sports. Never cared about it. Never thought about getting married. Never thought about any of that stuff. And then one day, a little blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girl walked in my life, and life was never the same. Jan, her whole life, dreamed that maybe she'd meet a halfway decent guy that would take care of her, help her, turn her free to live life. She wanted that the whole time. We moved to Fort Worth, not only for her to be with her dad, but to take care of her grandkids, to be around them. That's, I sound horrible, but that's not, it's not high on my list. It is hers. See, high on my list is I love working. That's why when I'm 70, I'm doing what I'm doing with you guys. I'm doing several other things, uh, and, and I, I got to be doing something. I can work 24-7. I can work all the time. And many times as a pastor, my job is consuming everything that's going on. But my job was when I get home to be home. My job was to be there for her. And that's something I had to learn along the way. And it can be a struggle because life gets so busy and so many things are happening. And I've known a lot of pastors sacrifice their families for everybody else but never be there when they needed to be there. Second thing, not only to be close, you've got to know her. She's already got you figured out. Remember, you're a simple creature. Jan's crying. Is she happy or is she angry? I better get it right. And I don't know always. I'm they're going, we've been married 40 years. I don't know what I do next at this point. I know some of you guys, you've been there. You know what I'm talking about. It's my job to know her. Case in point. I call Paul Burleson my pastor. He was at South Cliff for seven years. Back in the 70s, South Cliff exploded as the church in Fort Worth during those days. If you didn't get to Sunday night service in an auditorium two to three times bigger than this, if you didn't get there 30 minutes before Sunday night service started, you would not get in. We'd sing two songs, and he would teach for 50 minutes. guy was an amazing uh, expositor, an amazing teacher of the Word, but practicality to a level I've never seen a preacher ever do. And I learned much under him. But he was famous when he was a young preacher. He was at First Borger. And he got invited to speak at a conference on marriage in Dallas. 
whatever, I think it used to be Reunion Arena, whatever it was before that, because it's going way back, so I don't, I don't know Dallas that well. But he's a keynote, and there are going to be 15,000 people at this conference on marriage. And he's one of the keynotes at this. And he's only in his late 20s, but that's how great a speaker he'd already become across the nation. And so he said to Mary, go with me. They have three kids at the time. They later had four, but they have three kids. And she's thinking, I'm going to do this. She got babysitters. She's driving with him. He's got one reason why he wants her to go. She has another reason why she wants to go. Well, as they're getting there, Paul looked at her and said, Mary, let's do, I have to do a breakout session, and I've worked up something. I, I, I've never done this, but I want to see how this works. I'm going, to have, I'm going to say a word. You give your definition of the word. I'll give my definition of the word, and then we'll see where each other is at because, you know, we can, men and women can see things totally differently. So it sounded like a good exercise to her. Let me stop for a moment. Why it's important to her right now is their marriage is about over. He was a very tough, mean-spirited when he was young, alcoholic dad. That's all he knew. So the family had pretty much taken him. Though church, he looked good. It was not good at home. Mary came from a family of like 12 or 13 kids. Her parents were missionaries. She was used to a quiet life, and she didn't have it anymore. And she's going, hoping that this weekend might salvage where she's at. So when he said that, she's thinking, this could be good. We haven't talked in so long. This could be good. So he said to her, Mary, what does the word joy mean to you? Mary said, okay, when I'm joyful, and she gives her definition of joy. Paul looks at her, highly educated, a lot of degrees, brilliant speaker, looked at her and said, Mary, you're wrong. The word is kara in the Greek. He went through the etymology of the word. Went through all this definitions and everything and lectures her for about five minutes on what joy is. She gets the second word. Now, she's upset, as you can imagine. Second word was fear. She said, okay. Paul, when I'm scared, here's why I'm scared. Here's what fear means to me. And he goes, Mary, you're wrong. The Greek word is phobia. He gives her an etymology of the word, a lecture on how all that works for another good five, ten minutes, she said. The third word, I don't remember what it was. It's not important. But when Paul said the third word, Mary says, I'm not playing. What do you mean you're not playing? I'm not playing. What's going on? And I've never forgotten her words. I've heard her say this and I've heard him say this. And they've had the greatest marriage I've ever known. But this was a turning point. Paul, listen to me. When you ask me what joy meant, I have never heard the Greek word kara. How would I? I don't know the etymology of the word. I just know when I'm happy, this is why I'm happy. Oh, I should have known phobia. But I don't know what you, I know something, Paul. When I'm scared, this is why I'm scared. Paul, it's not that I don't know the definitions. You don't care. You don't care. But Paul, when we get home, I'm leaving. I know it's going to destroy your ministry, but I can't do this anymore. I'm leaving. That weekend changed everything for them, and they have 20 grandkids and 15 great-grandkids. They're still living in Oklahoma City. They're in their 80s. 
They're so active, it's not even funny. And their love for each other, when he was my pastor, was stunning and amazing. But I have never forgotten that story. It's my job to know my wife. And when I come to know who she is, that tells her how much I love her. So men, it's your job to be close and to know her and then show her honor. To stand next to her in public, at church, anywhere, and treat her as the most amazing woman ever in your life. And from guys, most of us, we married above what we should have ever done. So you need to do that. Know this, house and wealth are inheritance from our fathers, but an understanding good wife is a gift from God. And I wrap up, it's time to close, because I could keep going with this, but I need to get you home for lunch. To the men here who have daughters, this is how you teach your daughters what love's about, by how you treat the wife next to you. More important, your actions and even your words of what you teach is how you demonstrate it every day in your home when the doors are closed. Throw one sidelight in here as chairman of the board of Life Choices, seeing 7,000 women a year, 90% of the women who came in our clinic for help, whether it was pregnancy, sexual disease, or health issues that were dramatic, or to try to hide and escape from the suffering they were going through, 90% of them did not have fathers in their lives. And they didn't know what love even was. They were looking for it in all the wrong places. You want your daughters to have a good life, then you love your wife. Greatest compliment I ever got was just a few months ago before he died when my father-in-law looked at me and said, Steve, thank you. Jimmy has never said thank you to me about anything. He's a Marine. I was not tough enough for him for a while because I was not a Marine. I did become tough enough when I was coaching football towards the end, so that brought me in a little bit better. I said, what are you thanking me for? Thank you for giving my little girl a good life. Thank you for giving my little girl a good life. I said, thank you. I'm glad. Thank you for saying that. Treat your wife this way, and you'll find life works, men. And remember this. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And then one last thing. To those who are not married, the young ones in the room, girls, if the young man does not show you patience and kindness always, find someone else. I'm serious. If he doesn't do it when you're younger, he'll not do it later. Boys, if the woman is of folly, it's called, is boisterous, loud and rebellious, she doesn't know anything, and her feet will never remain at home. Go somewhere else. Be careful. I always tell parents, teach them when they're young, because when they become teenagers in their 20s and they fall for somebody, your words don't mean a thing anymore. They've already fallen. You want them to fall correctly by paying close attention to all that goes on. You know, in reality, marriage and family is simple. It's not easy, and sometimes it's very difficult, and I know. I'm, I'm not oblivious to all that can go wrong within a marriage. But I know this. If, if you're in a bad marriage, you're still called to live this way. If you're in a good marriage, you're called to live this way. Why? Because I'm called to walk with my Lord and do what he's called me to do. 
no matter the circumstances in which I find myself in. But I honestly and sincerely and deeply believe that if I walk in the ways of the Lord, it works. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor you've given us to study your word. And Father, we've dealt with an interesting subject today, especially within the culture that we live in. And so, Father, I pray that you'll help cement some of these amazing truths within our lives. Some of us have been through much hardship in our life and things have not always worked out like we wanted. May we learn from some of this, Lord, so that we can walk in a manner that is pleasing to you. For we want you to be glorified in the good and in the bad. And we want to be the kind of men and women you've called us to be. I pray for the families of, of Ridgecrest. Bless them and strengthen them in the days ahead. May your grace be poured out upon them. May they have such a love for you that it flows within their families and among their kids. And may you be glorified through all that takes place. It is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.